Welcome to Zen Bones, ancient wisdom for modern times. This is Mark Lesser. Why Zen Bones? Our world is in crisis and ever-shifting, and now, more than ever, more wisdom, clarity, and courage are essential, especially in the world of work, business, and leadership. My guest today is Alyssa Appel, PhD. She's an international expert on stress, well-being, and optimal aging, and a best-selling author of The Telomere Effect, and more recently, The Stress Prescription. She's a professor and vice chair in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. In this episode, we talk about health and well-being and the importance of cultivating and embodying strategies for how we relate to challenges and stress, especially embracing uncertainty, noticing what we can control and can't, and finding the positive and even excitement in our daily challenges. I bring you Alyssa Appel. I'm really happy to welcome my friend and colleague, Alyssa Appel. Hello, Alyssa. Hello, Mark. Thank you for having me. I was just thinking that I, it's great. You're one of those people who I got to teach some of your research before many years before we met back when i was teaching meditation and mindfulness to google engineers we would show a slide with your study about telomeres which was it was it the dark study that showed that chronic stress damages telomeres or was it a meditation study by chance? it was the meditation study <laughs> it was the meditation right because we were we always, at the beginning of our sessions with Google engineers, we had to start with the science. And so I thought that might be a great, if you'd be willing to just talk a little bit about what an amazing study, the relationship between the aging, health, telomeres, and med meditation. Yeah, it's one of my favorite topics and places to go personally to really experience deep states of meditation and to try to measure, observe, monitor how our body's responding. Not that I do that often, but I certainly have had my share of uh, wearing maybe this aura ring or other ways of looking at our body, our sleep and how it responds. So for me, it started about 20 years ago where I, as a mind-body researcher, really wanted to understand sensitive ways to look into the body and measure rate of aging, something sensitive way before disease. And that is a really fun topic these days because there are so many ways we can look into the blood and measure aging. So back then I was fortunate to work with Elizabeth Blackburn who won the Nobel prize for discovering telomeres or the, the enzyme telomerase, which repairs telomeres. Telomeres sit at the end of chromosomes. They protect them. They shorten as we age and I think the main thing about them is they're unlike a gene, which we can't change. They're really responsive to our well-being. Our not just like single thoughts, but more like, are we in a state of chronic stress that's going on for months or severe depression? That's when we see the relationships with shorter telomeres. And it didn't take long for me to find great collaborators to study retreat studies. And so Cliff Sarin appeared who 
was doing the study of three months on a mountain, a Shambhala retreat center, and looking at changes in both the brain and the blood before and after this retreat. And so that was our first meditation study. Cliff set up a centrifuge and we were able to look at cells and look at their aging activity, the, the telomerase enzyme. And that was that might be the study that that was circulating in your slides because that was the real the first one and the one people remember and it was it simply was that the more people felt well-being the higher their telomerase was at the end of the retreat and that applied to many ways that we think feelings of control feelings of purpose in life those were related to boosts in telomerase and then the converse feelings of stress, depression, despair, those were related to lower levels. So that was the first boost of excitement that we had, seeing that, well, this is probably a very malleable system. It's not just that we're born with a level of telomeres and telomerase, and then they're stuck there our whole lives. We can actually move them around. So this is one of those areas that I find fascinating about, on the one hand, there's science, and you just mentioned science and one's experience and the relationship between those two, right? And maybe just to back up a little bit, right? So telomeres and telomerosis, as I understand them, I sort of picture these like the end caps, like of shoelaces, the end yes. caps of our chromosomes, and that this research that, that you've in, been involved with is measuring the, the length, is it the length of these, of the telomeres and that they are an indication of how people are aging and an indication of how people are dealing with how healthy they're working with stress. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. There, we can measure the length of them in our blood that we're averaging across millions of chromosomes, telomeres, and we get this nice average. And that is, I think of it as a integrative marker it's just counting up the influences of lifestyle of mental health genetics and so it doesn't just reflect one thing but we do know that when we look in large samples we can see things pop out and say wow this is important this is related to longer telomeres despite all the noise controlling for age and our body size and all we can see things like in many studies optimism and optimistic attitude seems to be very protective of our health and related to these longer telomeres. And what that means for in large studies is that statistically, we're going to be fighting off disease longer. We're going to have a longer health span. And that's what we really care about. Not, not just how long you live, although it does predict longevity, it more so predicts how well our body staves off disease. It's in a sense, a protective factor. What it means literally is that our cells can keep on dividing. Our replenishing cells can repair better and replicate throughout decades and decades. That's, and it's just one marker. There's lots of other ways that we can look at aging. There's no one clock in the body. So we always need to put it in perspective, but it's one, it is one of the clocks that we understand very well now. And it's striking to me that you did that research and side by side with your new book, The Stress Prescription, which is based on a lot of the research that you've done, but also very kind of practical 
ways to implement strategies for having a healthy relationship with the stress, the stressors of our daily lives. That that's always been my main interest, both stress and well-being, because the, all of the other factors that influence telomeres, they're still important. And I've spent years clinical trials looking at things like, oh, if you increase omegas, you can potentially lengthen telomeres, or if you're a caregiver, if you engaged in exercise over months and months, you might be able to lengthen your telomeres or loving kindness, meditation. These are all great, hopeful data points, but understanding how stress is associated with our aging is there's just layers and layers to that because stress is not just one thing. It's so much about our beliefs, our mindset, how we hold our body, even when we're not stressed. And even just our beliefs about like, what should life be like? Our expectations kind of set us up, I would say, for more or less stress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in a new book, which is called Finding Clarity, I feature Homer Simpson as a expert on dealing with stress and leadership. And he famously says, why does everything have to be so hard? And it's exactly the kind of attitude that you're, we're all trying to undo. Things are hard. Things, life, everything has its challenges. And I love the is that you talk about like finding excitement in challenges is one, finding excitement and having a different, shifting our relationship with things that are which can be harder to do than it might seem at the surface. Yes. Yes. And not only is life hard and unpredictable, our minds are so messy. Our minds look for things to go wrong or chew on things that went wrong. Like we just carry it around with us. So I'm so in honored that you read the stress prescription and interested from your perspective. What, what about finding clarity and kind of crispness? as a leader, is that related to stress? Yeah, for sure. That, yeah. And also I was struck by mentioning throughout the book, the practice of, of meditation. And it's interesting, one of the ways, a kind of classic way that meditation is taught is that with each breath, letting go of expecting anything, right? Letting go of expecting anything. Now, this may sound, it sounds kind of impossible, but it's interesting to actually notice how often we are expecting things. And even the classic, I think it's in the, maybe the first chapter of Shunryu Suzuki's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, suggests that you let go of even expecting that there's going to be another in-breath after you exhale. That's like the radical letting go of expecting that you're still going to be alive. And that if there is another in-breath, that you're surprised and amazed by it. And like, oh, here I am. This is not so easy to do, but the sense, there is some sense, I think, of the power of letting go of our, of our expectations. And I think in all our relationships, it's so easy to I often describe that when I walk into a, a company, it's sometimes like a fishbowl where the water is dirty and people don't notice because they all have these kind of concretized expectations of who other people are, how they're going to respond, what's instead of this letting go of that. 
and the sense of letting go and allowing a sense of curiosity, which is where, where I start. The name of the first chapter of my book is Be Curious, Not Furious. Ooh. And I think, <laughs> and, and, well, I think everyone should have that sewn into their clothing, but that's very much related to the first three practices, especially in your book about embracing uncertainty, letting go of what you can't control. And again, this, I love even just how you very simply finding excitement in challenges, finding excitement, curiosity, not being tossed around by challenges. Yes. Those are just such great examples of our lack of clarity, of our expectations clouding us. And really holding expectations means that we're not really here fully present in this moment either, because we're, we have this forward looking, I like to say, we're bracing, we're cringing, we're vigilant for the unexpected. And it just, even when you just said, can we truly let go of expectations fully right now? Like I just felt this release even in my body. And that's, it's catching those ways that we hold on to our wish for control or predictability that we can catch and we can release. That's the beauty of like having people remind us of that, Mark, like you just reminded me. It's a great mental habit to cultivate, to catch ourselves when we are pretty much living in the future and thus not seeing our reality as it is. One of the things you talk a lot about curiosity and it is definitely an antidote to not knowing, but how do you also hold that with the, the dialectic that the future is not just a miracle of being alive with beauty, but it is also holding what we don't know that's hard sadness, sorrow, hardship, adversity. So curiosity, to be curious means you're open. Does it also mean you have a slight positive bias of, of future? Yeah, I, th I think that way the word curious, or at least the way that we now use it, it does have a, a bit of a positive slant to it, right? So you can be curious about your stress. You can be curious I often say that when my inner critic comes up or when I'm feeling my own sense of wanting more certainty, I'm like, oh, that, wow, there I am doing that thing that I'm always teaching other people not to do. Isn't, isn't that interesting? What is that about? Also in the world of work or just our ordinary lives, I think of it, and I'm curious how this strikes you about that we have to live in multiple worlds right? We have to live in the world of we're trying to do things, whether it's write a book or write a paper or grow a business or have a healthy family relationships. And we have those intentions, those things that we're wanting to do. And we notice the gaps between where we are and what we're wanting to do. And we have to live in that world of recognizing the distinctions, recognizing those gaps. But the other world, that world can get pretty stressful and uncomfortable. Aspiration, ambition, live there. Yeah. And I think, again, I think all those things, I think achievement, and I hope that we are ambitiously trying to solve climate change, that we're ambitiously trying 
to wake people up, wake ourselves up, that, that there's an ambition about that. At the same time, letting go of expectations and just appreciating whatever is. Being curious about our expectations and curious about how we, how am I doing in this? Yeah, I'm really struggling with this aspect, various aspects of my work life. And like, and of course I want to close those gaps. And at the same time, how beautiful that I get to be curious about what's happening and appreciate just being alive, appreciating the challenges. Again, noticing, noticing what I have control over and what I don't have control over. Yes, that's, that is absolutely key to the healthy stand, this way of being that we need to cultivate. It has to be with such humility and such acknowledgement of what we think we're controlling. Often we can just kind of step back and realize how much we're might be expending energy on things we can't control or outcomes that we expect that we can't necessarily see, touch, hold on to control. So I do think this curiosity, this stance, this mindset, that's so important for being a human in this era, for being able to feel ease. It does go along with the sacredness of everyday life. Mm -hmm. You, the miracle and this kind of stepping back and having room for realizing that it really does allow us to be granular in the moment so that our narrative isn't just about mm -hmm. this terrible thing happened that shouldn't and I feel victimized. It's just it's so easy to go there, We're just even turning on the news and just feeling so down about what we see in global events and in climate. It's too easy. So it's just a survival skill now for us to basically live in the day in the miracle of being alive right now, being able to do what we can. Climate's a great example. I love climate as an example, because like you said, on one hand have no control, but on the other hand, we don't control long-term outcomes, but there's so much that we can build our life around that has meaning and purpose for earth, for sustainability, even if it's not our day job. <laughs> right, right. I think it's early in your book where you describe us as being related to baboons. It was a, a Google scientist friend of mine was fond of saying that we are descendants of the nervous apes. So I think getting to the underlying, well, what's the problem? I'm glad we're talking about the sacred and a sacred approach to being human, which, and then there's that, that way, in a way, a lot of these practices antidotes to our uh, our expectations and not only our expectations but our catastrophizing right climate change it's easy to get all worked up to be indignant and angry and fearful and what about our grandchildren and all of that seems appropriate in many ways i'm also curious one of the things that i've been saying and i'm curious if from a scientific point of view are scanning for threats i also wonder if this is also the inward scanning for threats that is that inner critic is that same oh that same mechanism that is always looking for what can go wrong in in our environment is also kind of shining its gaze inward and always looking at checking ourselves judging ourselves that deep inner critic that it's mm -hmm. that same right the nervous ape or the baboon as you yeah. talk about I, I that makes complete sense it's all goes back to 
um, that survival instinct that we're here because we were so good at surviving because our stress response system is so fine-tuned, so fast, so prolonged more than it needs to be. So I do think the inner critic, the wanting to be the first to criticize herself or to ruminate too long on negative things is partly about our social survival, wanting to um, to minimize risks and threats. It's just that we don't realize how unproductive that is. We think it's problem solving <laughs> or justice or all those beliefs of being flawed and being undeserving. So those are all fuel for that kind of scanning vigilant being triggered by negative thoughts about the self. And that's very, it's very, I think, helpful when you go back to the, we are, we are primates, we are animals, we are monkeys in clothes, because we are both. We most definitely have phenomenal wiring that we're never going to necessarily fully overcome, meaning we're going to respond to stressors in bigger, bigger, more exaggerated ways biologically than necessary, especially some of us. We're, we're just stress sensitive. We have all sorts of reasons for that. Maybe early trauma, epigenetics that have passed on. So we all have these different levels of reactivity. And that is really beautiful. It serves us beautifully in this life when we do need to respond to a threat. And we can kind of nudge that stress response to be like, yes, this is really mobilizing glucose and oxygen and helping me. And thank you. Thank you to these adrenals that are working so hard. And those kind of positive reframes of being it, being the ancestor of the nervous ape, that is actually very powerful. And that's been studied. Those, those positive views of stress are protective. They're, they help us we recover more quickly and problem solve better. So just even the humor of realizing, yep, there it is, you know, my heart's racing. And rather than going down kind of catastrophe of this is bad for me, I'm not going to be able to sleep or problem solve or going down the path of like, it's amazing. <laughs> my body's built for this. It knows how to recover. This is not damaging. And this is all about that acute stress response. And then the other piece that that is beautiful about being an animal we think we're not, but of, of course we are. The ability for us to see the sacredness and to have these communal experiences like love and purpose. And that helps us overcome. There's almost nothing as stress buffering as that feeling connected, social support, and feeling purpose. That helps us tolerate things like existential stressors. Yeah. So we overcome the animal nature in that beautiful way. And especially if we focus on that. Yeah, it's interesting in a couple of things I'm thinking of. One is that when people hear mindfulness or Zen, immediately people have this sense of stress-free or calm. And I often think it's just the opposite. It's actually bring it, bring it on, bring it mm. on attitude and not avoiding. We get into a lot of trouble, I think, by avoiding difficulties or avoiding avoiding conflict. I mean, this is one of those huge ones in the world of work and leadership. In my own life, I look at my own work history. The only times I've ever really gotten into trouble were by avoiding conflict. Interesting. Um, and that I've had to, it's a train myself anytime I feel a sense of my own natural personality is 
I want things to be stress-free and I avoid, I tend to avoid it. And boy, it really gets you in trouble as a leader, especially managing people, running companies, essential to lean in and be curious about, oh, I'm, there's some conflict here. How can I skillfully address it and work with it? Even though it may feel it's like, oh yeah, this is stressful, but this is good. This is good. Mm, important. This that is, is such important a, stress. that really helps me understand our, when I work with our leaders of our huge university, I just think, I mean, all day I see them when we have problems, right? All day they're sitting there, they get to do some strategy and, and fun, proactive things, but mostly they are the buck stops with them, with all of the different interpersonal problems day after day. And I just think how, you know, your, your adrenal can't just keep responding to all that, or you wouldn't be there. You wouldn't last, you would burn out. So what is it about taking on that role? And so you just described that so well of like, there's goodness here, there's fruit here mm-hmm. in, in these problems solving. Yeah. yeah. There's a, there's an expression in the, um, again, in the Zen world of, and you use the expression, it's shifting one's way of being in the world, shifting one's way of being. And it's, I've, I'm very fond of the living by vow, living by intention, as opposed to living by habit energy or compulsion or compulsiveness or living by fear instead of living by fear. Yeah. This kind of vow to become really familiar with our, and to embrace, embrace the challenges, to embrace what's stressful and hard. So how does that work for you? First of all, you're, you described avoidance well, and we all do it. It's our number one immediate coping response, right? Is to withdraw, deny, not see, or just avoid by not engaging, really. Not engaging with stressful situations in life is an unhealthy pattern. It's related to less, worse health, worse kind of cognitive aging. And so there's an under-engagement issue too. I'm wondering what the signs are when you feel, does it start in your body? You feel discomfort and you go there with an inquiry. Our bodies, I think, are like, this is the, I think, why one of the many reasons I think meditation practice is so critical in that it's a body practice. Of course, our our intellects are super powerful, but there's something, especially in this realm of emotions, how the signals we get and to train ourselves to pay attention to those signals. I can think of many stories, but one is I can remember being in, in couples therapy and I, I noticed a slight movement of my wife's lip and I could feel the chemistry in my body change as like I had immediately assigned meaning to that she was unhappy with something or something something it's like danger i see that in the work world that whatever and whatever world you're in wherever with other people we are our bodies are reacting especially to threat and especially to to danger and i can remember in that moment of having this dialogue with myself feeling it and saying I'm curious what is happening with you right now because I'm I'm getting some signals that you're unhappy about something. Can you tell mm-hmm. me what's what's going on? Love that example. And you were aware enough to actually note why you got an alarm in your body. And that happens all the time and we don't actually notice it. We just have the alarm go off and we're like, 
something's wrong, I'm feeling stressed. And so one of the, one of the most important sets of coping strategies is actually to change up this, the environment that we're in, change up the scenery. And it sounds like the weakest, but it's pretty important. So what I mean by that is we're, we're just responding all the time. The body's definitely a number one go-to place for even registering how stressed we are. We think many of us are aware and even more people are not aware and they learn from like, oh, my hands are clenched or my jaw's hurting. Or those are the the body accumulation of unconscious stress that is providing us information a little late, I would say. So that's training the habit to be doing these check-ins with the body and these releases in different ways is so important. But there's cues, like we know the phone is affecting our attention when it's in front of us, or we know that the urban landscapes are changing our brain waves to be more, much more vigilant versus nature landscapes that create more of the, you know, the brain waves that reflect relaxation and the sounds, water, for example, sound of water. There's a lot of studies on nature stimuli versus urban stimuli that just make us, it should really validate us in weighing and prioritizing, creating peaceful environments with safety signals. We don't usually think in terms of safety signals, but yes, people are safety signals with their emotions and just how supported we feel objects, nature, pets, for sure, sensory experiences, blankets, aromatherapy, the weighted blanket or weighted vests were just for kids. And now it's becoming popular for adults because we're anxious. We need all the tools we can get, including sensory. Yeah. And I think what I was also hearing in terms of changing environments within people that we work with, it's even just changing the rules a little bit like it's okay to express doubt. It's okay to ask about how other people are doing personally, how you're feeling to create safe, safer, envi safe mm -hmm. environments are, tend to be much healthier environments to build in a lot of these strategies that you talk about in your book about working with, with stress. I love that concept of the work place as one of the safe environments. It's not what we usually think of. I mean, work should promote health and purpose, but it's often that work is one of our major stressors. So what is a way that in a daily or more regular way that we have safety cues at work, that we reinvigorate the idea that this is a safe place or safe container? Yeah. Well, I think this is why Brene Brown's work has been so popular in that it starts with making ourselves vulnerable. Like, so as a leader or whatever we're doing in our organizations, that I can admit my mistakes, I can apologize, I can talk about my own vulnerability. This, I mean, there are many ways to create safety, but that would be a great mm -hmm. starting, a great starting place is with mm -hmm. our own vulnerability. And people who are in leadership roles, you can transform the culture. That's, if you want to change the culture, start with yourself but start by bringing in your own authenticness, genuineness, vulnerability, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it. But, and it's so related though, what's interesting is that these practices, it means embracing uncertainty. That's vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Letting go of what you can't control. Like that means making yourself vulnerable. Yes. Taking risks, social risks. Yeah. yeah I love that. And there's, there's this kind of fine line, there's venting, there's expressing, um, negative emotions. And while we need to do that, that's also contagious. 
I feel like I've had years of being a transmitter of stress in my workplace because I would, I'd be in a rush. Everyone would know my deadlines. I'd be making them feel the urgency and this and that. And then there's, there's the idea of modeling and sharing ways that you're regulating and normalizing that and taking the stigma out of it. That could mean anything, sharing that you're going to therapy or taking medication or needing your time out or mindful five minutes, what, whatever it is that is acceptable wording that you want to create a norm for, acceptable to you. It's like we're, we're as leaders, especially, we're creating the environment in a passive, if we don't realize the power of our modeling, we're doing it in a passive way. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in the work world, there is something about, it's a positive of working with energy, even at times working with a sense of urgency, but how to do that in a way that creates vulnerability, goodness, and connection. Alyssa, I was just picturing you as you said that times you were spreading stress, but I suspect these days you are spreading goodness. <laughs> it may be with some stress, but I consciously <laughs> do try to ask people, like, look at, rather than having a transactional relationship, even if you have a short meeting, you know, st starting with the person in front of you and seeing their whole and asking how they are. And so that always is kind of a step one and maybe even setting an intention before a new interaction, a meeting about realizing what the common goals, the wishes for well-being, the hoping to support whatever person is coming to you. So those are other ways that I have made work more meaningful, less stressful. Mm -hmm. And it certainly helps to have relationships come first versus the transaction. Anything at all that you, as a way of uh, ending today that you'd like to say? Well, th thank you for bringing so much amazing wisdom about well-being and prioritizing well-being to businesses. That is sacred work in this world. And the impact is immeasurable. I just admire and you and I'm grateful for your work. Oh, and thank you for the, again, I, as I said earlier, I so appreciate bringing science into this realm of mindfulness meditation and living in a more healthier way. It just might save us. It just might save us the combination of the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Listen in each week for interviews, teachings, and guided meditations. You'll receive supportive tools for creating more meaningful work and mindfulness practices to develop yourself, to influence your organization, and to help change the world. Thank you for listening.